based here in the Anton, Brisbane, um, on unceded Aboriginal land. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners upon this land in which we meet today, um, and also acknowledge our Aboriginal leaders and our Torres Strait Islander leaders, past, present, and future. Uh, I am very honoured um, to be invited to. I guess, facilitate and speak with these fabulous people today, in the Jim Watson, Dale Harding and Leighton Lee. Um, but to begin with, I'd like to uh, read something. So a short text about part of the exhibition that I feel really portrays um, the, the gist or the guts of the exhibition. And that text is, On Fire, Climate and Crisis looks to the past, present and future terrain, considering the damaging legacies of colonialism and how artists visualise experiences of connection and disconnection with the environment. And fire's capacity for rejuvenation in keeping with the expanding Indigenous cultural fire movement. I would like to personally thank and congratulate my dear friend Tim Riley Walsh and artists Gordon Bennett and Madonna Staunton, may they rest in peace, Naomi Blacklock, Paul Bong, Hannah Bronte, Michael Candy, Kinley Gray, Dale Harding, Tracy Moffat with Gary Hilberg, Erica Scott, Anne Wallace, Judy Watson, Warraba Weatherall, Tintin Woolier, and Jemima Wyman. A little housekeeping around today. Uh, so we um, are limited by time, unfortunately, for our discussion. Um, but I would also like to open the discussion up to you guys, so everyone here in the room. So if you do have any questions throughout the discussion, um, please raise your hand, and Alex is, is around somewhere. Um, up the back, hi, um, with Mike. So if you do have any, um, if you do notice something that you want us to elaborate on, um, just raise your hand and we'll get to you. Um, okay, so let's begin. Let's hear from our speakers. And Leeton, I'd like to um, come to you first as, um, I guess, uh, cultural advisor, practitioner. Can you, um, Tell us about yourself, who's your mob, and tell us about a little bit about your cultural journey thus far. Sure, thanks, uh, Shannon. Um, my name's Leeson Lee. I'm a Thungari Bunjalang Wildgold man. Um, I live on the Gold Coast hinterland. Um, before I begin, though, I think it's really important just to, um, to acknowledge a few people um, who are part of the reason why I'm here, where I am. Um, Victor Stephenson, um, probably a familiar name uh, a lot of people have heard over the last year, especially. Um, Peter Stanley and Oliver Costello, um, instrumental in, um, this isn't something that's new. Uh, the work that they're doing in uh, restoring cultural fire on landscapes has been happening for 30 years. Um, which brings me to the other two special people to acknowledge um, Dr. George and Dr. Musgrave, um, Kuku Taipan elders. And they're the knowledge keepers, were the knowledge holders uh, that was passed down. Um, I first got involved with Fire Sticks Alliance um, uh, nearly three years ago now. Um, and uh, from the first workshop, I knew where I was supposed to be. Um, I worked in uh, community services with schools, um, delivering cultural education and working in those sort of spaces, um, but I saw a lot of the benefits, uh, not just environmentally, but socially, um, and where we, where we need to strive to be. Um, over the last couple of years, I've pretty much um, just tried to uh, literally stand in Victor's shadow anywhere that he goes to try and follow him to absorb and learn the knowledge um, as much as I can. Um, 
also important to acknowledge there are a number of other people across Australia who are currently restoring their cultural fire practices um, and sharing and working with community in doing that. Um, so in, at the end of last year, um, I actually uh, signed up with Fire Sticks and um, became a, a, one of the first employees of Fire Sticks Alliance. Uh, which was really a special moment for me because I've been doing a lot of this work in this space uh, for the last couple of years in my own time uh, because I felt so strongly that we need to see something change and it's a really good opportunity now. So uh, my area where I'm working in is uh, southeast Queensland um, and there'll be a lot of activations and a lot of different things happening uh, in our area over the next couple of years and ongoing hopefully. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm here uh, today to, to share uh, with you and hopefully uh, open a little bit of a different perspective or an understanding. Um, and if anybody has any burning questions, I'll leave that with you. I have lots of fire puns, but I'll, I'll just leave that with you there. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to having a, a yarn and a conversation and um, uh, yeah, having a really good yarn today. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Leeton. Um, just before we move on to Judy and Dale, can you just tell us really briefly, um, I think I want to also set the scene around um, the fires that came and it's almost like a, it's almost like it didn't happen, but it did. Um, can you just tell us briefly about how you feel about <coughs> the fires that happened last year? Um, prior to um, COVID, uh, what were you doing and what was your reaction? Um, I spent a lot of time crying last year because um, it was really heartbreaking to see what was happening across the country. Um, sorry, outside of uh, the Fire Sticks Alliance and actually uh, part of that now, I've been a volunteer after the first um, workshop that I went to. I went up and signed up with uh, one of the local rural fire brigades. Um, so I'm a firefighter and uh, burn planner for Tambourine Mountain Rural Fire Brigade um, with the sole intention of um, changing perspectives. Um, I travelled a lot of country last year fighting fires and seeing that there was a better way to do things. Um, down to Namaji National Park down in Canberra, um, over Esk, um, and then we had the fires in the Gold Coast hinterland. Um, I think it's, it's almost the elephant in the room, isn't it, that um, the reason why the fires have come, everybody knows it, but uh, we're not talking about it and we're not changing things as much as we need to be. Um, it's a combination of things from um, the way that we, that we now manage our water. It's a combination of uh, how we manage the landscape, either inappropriate fire regimes or the absence of fire. Um, both of those things, because it's really important that we have a balance. We live on a continent that's been forged um, to tolerate or depend on fire. And Without the right fire on those landscapes, we will continue to see the things that we'll see. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of things that we can be doing, um, and a lot of that stuff is happening, um, but it's not happening on a government level. It's ha happening on a community level. Um, so all of your communities uh, can make the biggest impact, and that's just people coming together uh, with the sole purpose of, of looking after this place that we call home. Uh, wherever that is. Um, yeah, so the last, the last year's been um, pretty hard, um, but it's also been uh, seen a lot of positive stuff too, um, and a lot of outcomes that have happened in um, different communities. Uh, where we've been working over the last couple of years, down near Wollongong and Nowra, uh, we actually ran a fire workshop in 2018, and that's where that fire, the wildfire that went through to Wollongong, stopped and it pulled up in that space and there's a number of stories or good stories like that all across uh, up the eastern seaboard. 
Thanks. Okay, Judy, can we um, turn to you? I think um, from what I've been seeing uh, so far, you're having a, a, a very busy and full-on <laughs> exciting year already in terms of your practice, and um, I hope to get to Sydney um, to see your exhibition, the beautiful exhibition that you have um, going on with uh, Carol McGregor at Artspace. Uh, can, similarly, can you intro introduce yourself to the room and um, I guess to the camera as well, um, a little bit about yourself. <laughs> yeah, there is just a couple of cameras. Um, about yourself um, and also about your practice. Hello everyone, um, my name is Judy Watson and the Aboriginal matrilineal side of my family is Wanyu people who are from northwest Queensland but our country is cut by the Northern Territory border so it actually flows across into the Northern Territory as well. And my uh, mother's side of the family are Wanyu people, my grandmother was born at, um, at Riversley Station in northwest Queensland, um, her mother and other ancestors um, worked on properties all around Queensland and the Northern Territory and mums who grew up um, on Maydown Station outside of Mount Isa. My mother's Joyce Watson and you might know her as an artist uh, who has worked with a lot of communities um, within Brisbane and uh, around Queensland as well. Great, thanks Judy. And um, can you tell me um, your feeling your emotions around the fires last year. Were you watching it on the news like a lot of us? Is that how you discovered it? Yeah, I sort of tend to look at um, internet news mostly. I don't really watch television a lot. So it was constantly looking at what was happening and being horrified. At the same time, there was also the COVID-19 pandemic going through, so it felt like one thing after the other. And it always has, it just seems to be building up and more and more, as I'm sure many of you are aware. You know, there's more fires, there's more floods, there's more devastation. And it just seems to be, I don't think it's just for me at this time of my life, but I think for everyone, you can see it's really barreling along and it's getting more and more intense. Uh, like the fires that we're seeing. Um, so I am not as uh, learned in fire management. I know of people who are and I've read research. I'm not an expert in the area, but I've certainly always been interested in fires and how they go through areas and also looking at uh, the regrowth in those areas. And in fact, when I lived in Darwin, outside of Darwin, uh, there was on a rural property, there was um, a place across the road where fire was being managed to come through that area and so I would go through and collect, um, basically do a skin peel of after the fire had gone through onto canvas and lift it up and look at that and work with that. And um, in my 20s when I was living in Tasmania, I was uh, going through and looking at fires and how they had gone through um, Frasenay Peninsula, for example, and just sort of seeing the difference between what it was like pre-fire and then after fire. And also recognising as an artist and just somebody who's, anybody who's interested in sort of seeing uh, nature around them, the beauty that comes through after fires as well. There's devastation, but it's incredibly beautiful. So in Frasenay Peninsula, for example, you had these um, beautiful pink, uh, you know, granite rocks, um, this really charcoal sort of look. And I think I was thinking about that a little bit with this work at the back here. Um, and also when something, when fire goes through and you see the, the memory of those, what happens when a tree has fallen or a branch and suddenly you see its ghostly outline in ash and it's there, it's almost like it's, it's a horizontal version of what it was. It's very soft and mesmerising. And then you see what happens as the regrowth is coming through. And that's what I'm thinking of with this intense sort of green here, as well as the skeletal remains of trees when you see them. And in fact, with a friend, Rosemary Lang, a photographer, she was sending through photographs of the South Coast just recently, and we were looking at you know, it's like a mirroring image of the grafts and the trees and the greens and that verdant regrowth. 
But as she said, what's coming back there is a very small amount of what was there. There's incredible uh, regrowth with some of the things, like the hakeas, etc. Hakeas, um, but some of the older trees, and I'm sure you know, Leeton and others will talk about that, have then gone. And what what will come back will not be the same. And of course, within that area too, there were many scar trees which we had seen, you know, travelling around uh, where canoes or shields have been taken out, and they have burnt. And to me, that's as along with with everything else, it's absolutely devastating. Um, thank you. And Dale, um, it's actually so great to see you um, and I'm really uh, grateful that we have this um, pocket in time in this um, bittersweet exhibition to have this discussion today. Can you please um, introduce yourself to the room and um, share a bit about, I know you do travels to your place, to your country, often, now and again, and I'm, I'm, I'm knowing that you're, you're walking and you're um, observing and you're making art about a lot of things, um, but can you um, tell us about um, your practice in terms of your travels from here, back and forth, and how um, your country impacts your practice? Sure, sure. Uh, and thanks Judy and Leeton and Shannon and may I celebrate Tim Riley Walsh, the curator of the exhibition. Um, so I'm really fortunate to have many opportunities and even sometimes excuses to go into what is sort of northwest Queensland. So my mother's a Bidjara woman and her mother was a Gungaloo woman born at Warabinda uh, and uh, her mother was a Garingbull uh, descendant, so, and my mother's father was a Bidjara man, and so Gungaloo, Garingbull and Bidjara all interconnected, all sharing uh, similar language and similar story across a big band of what is called Central Queensland. I've been fortunate to be able to spend a lot of time in there the last few years uh, on all, all the stuff we call work and research and play and life, and um, I'll probably start by saying in, in early 2019 I made a work here for the IMA on commission which uh, was quietly addressing the first round of fires which came through the region in 2018. Um, that work was in the, in the front gallery over here as a blackened space and so fires in the landscape and fire in the cultural landscape has been part of the work and sometimes it's been quiet and often it's been because it's a shared reality, shared in the distresses but also shared in the ownership of that story in the, in the, in the public realm. Um, so there's been many opportunities for me to make work and for me to be motivated to make work but particularly driving through central Queensland uh, at different times I can recognise the way that land has or hasn't been cared for in the ways that I might know are good or better or alternative to the ways they are. So very often I can see uh, fire in times which you know Leeton and his colleagues would suggest might be the wrong occasion uh, and I also have the fortune of meeting non-Aboriginal people who are multi-generational uh, pastoralists who have been working to take up and work closely with fire sticks and to take up those sensibilities and to apply it to the, the landscape that they really do know a lot about having been on there for multiple generations and, and uh, seeking to find ways that local Murray knowledge and uh, environmental knowledge can come back into the burning practice. Um, so I have made works around fire quite often. There's been fire involved in social history which was uh, in past works staged at the Gallery of Modern Art. I've made works around fire and, uh, and boundaries, uh, surveyor's pegs, and the way that surveyor's pegs are supposed to be the markers of the territory, but actually they mean very little uh, in, in a wildfire. And also I've made a lot of work in recent times with xantheria resin or grass tree resin. Uh, and so for me, the grass trees are really big in, in what my family have as our story. They're really big in my... Um, kind of lens on the landscape, but also they're really prominent for me, what I would suggest are markers for the way that land has been managed or not managed. And, and Leeton and I were speaking about this earlier, but xanthoreas have fire as part of their story, and I can very often see xanthoreas that I would suggest haven't been burned for a really long time in, within the built environment, and so that's a question on us as a, as, a, as a group, as a society, to be looking at if the markers are in the landscape and they're readable, how are we going to address that? Yeah. Um, 
have a special interest in that plant, which is, um, uh, the, the story is just uh, phenomenal and just how um, intrinsic um, it is to this land as, an, as a nation, really, I think. Um, I just want to ask at this point, are there any questions? Um, because we're about to get into um, something um, really involved, I think, in terms of... Yes, Judy. Um, I was just wondering about the basket. Did Alex take... Did you... Sorry. Did you share leaves? Does it, has everybody got... Yeah. So we want this to be kind of like a sensory thing as well. And um, there are two um, plants that we have. And one was lemon-scented gum and the other was lemon myrtle. Does everybody have two? Where did you get yours from there? Alex, can you? Um, thanks, Judy. Little reminder. So this one is the, um, what is this? This is the lemon scented gum. Gum, that's the gum. That's the gum, yep. So please take one, crush it in your hand. It's so, they're so refreshing. Also in the basket is uh, white cypress bark. Uh, and the, the, the cypress has a, a, a story around fire as well. It's a very, very beautiful smoke. Uh, while that's going around, could Dale talk, tell the story of the white cypress bark, perhaps? Yes. A little, a little bit. Um, the small bits that I do know is that white cypress is a sort of clumping tree. It can build thickets, achieve thickets which might be, become a monoculture. Um, and so it's a timber that has been used in a lot of the uh, furniture and uh, what do we call that? Uh, um, building architecture in Queensland because it's relatively termite resistant uh, and it's really straight. So this white cypress will grow and, and at times take over quite a thicket. Uh, it's also pretty uh, oily, um, resinous timber, and it burns really hot as well. And so that's a really hot, really uh, high fuel fire if that gets into the white cypress. And this is probably for a, a greater discussion more than my anecdotes, but I hear at times stories of uh, pastoralists not being compassionate to that white, white cypress and just lighting it up. And so that's a really hot fire. It's a really aggressive process, and it can potentially wipe out the whole the whole stand. But working with the plant itself and working with its own ecosystem and when it's a good time to burn to manage that, uh, that regrowth and sort of eliminate the need for it to, the opportunity for it to become a monoculture. These are kind of things that can be taken up but the white cypress has a really very beautiful smoke, a really clean white smoke that has a, a very strong, almost medicinal smell for me. Thanks, Dale. Uh, so Leeton, uh, as a cultural practitioner, um, similarly to Dale and Judy, you're, you're, you're constantly learning, like all of us, but you're constantly learning. But I know that you're also constantly educating. Can you um, talk about some of the workshops that um, you've been delivering over the years, um, um, especially workshops that you've been delivering for young people, so children? I want I'd like to hear about those because I'd really like to know at the core of what's the purpose of these. Like, what's the knock-on effect once you teach young people pretty much about culture? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, I spend a lot of time working in schools in cultural education. So uh, really, a big part of that is um, not only to share some of our culture, with the children so they understand and respect it and uh, feel a part of it um, because we all live on the same land on the same landscapes um, but a lot of it is around plants and their uses or their values and understanding that a lot of what we see around us we have foods we have medicines we have materials all of these things have values outside of money a lot of the time now, we, uh, as soon as we look at properties and they're assessed, they're assessed for a monetary value. Um, so for a lot of kids, we've got 
so many kids that are going to school hungry without food. They have food growing in their schools that they can eat that they don't know about. So I spend time with some of the kids to actually walk around. These are lily pillies and they're standard um, things that grow in just about all, all schools. The spiky-headed mat rush. Um, some of the schools will have bush tucker gardens and things like that, but they're walking past stuff on their way to school while their guts are grumbling. Um, so teaching them about those foods, um, I'm very cautious at the same time um, and really uh, affirm that, you know, if they're going to do things to make sure that they're doing it with supervision. Um, but the big thing that they take away from it, they understand that there's balance in the landscape they understand that there's value in the landscape and they understand that there's diversity in the landscape, which is really, really important to maintain, um, especially for the fire work that we do. But not only that, when we maintain the diversity in landscapes, it actually strengthens them. Um, but I'm finding kids just get it, especially primary school age kids, they understand. You can tell them something and they'll ask me, they'll say, Mr. Lee, if Aboriginal people have been burning for thousands of years and they did it the right way, why do we do it differently now? So I encourage them to actually ask those questions. Not necessarily to be rude about it or to question authority or grown-ups, but to ask the questions so they can understand, but also to plant those seeds that I'm planting with the kids. They're growing and they're touching other people. Um, and I try and encourage them to ask when they see something that's not right, especially when it comes to the land and the environment, ask the question, why are we doing it like this? Why do we have to knock down all of those trees to put some houses in? And kids really understand that. I'm not sure what happens, whether hormones completely block their logic when they get to high school or what it is, but there's something that changes. But that primary school age, um, and even younger, they understand it and they get it and they see the value and the importance. So uh, the, the humble bee, the importance that they play on our landscapes, um, and then they're always wowed when I make fire with the sticks and yelling out, fire, 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 and the neighbours are all popping out, looking over what's going on. Um, but part of that is just trying to build within a lot of our children a positive experience or a positive understanding of our landscapes because the children are, they're the people who are gonna be in council or national parks or um, in other places making decisions that will affect their children and grandchildren. Um, and I guess I, I look at a lot of that work as um, we've inherited the earth or the space where we occupy uh, we're responsible for it and it's up to us whether we're leaving our children and grandchildren an inheritance or are we leaving them a debt? Um, This is on. Um, I feel like it's like a cultural <coughs> responsibility for everyone um, and like you were saying like what happens people get to a certain point and I mean, a, a, a different thing maybe that runs parallel is, is a way that I look at art. Why do some children stop their artistic ability as children and then they grow up and they go to university and they become an accountant? No offence to if there's any accountants in the room, but <laughs> it, do you know what I mean? It's like, what happens? Why? Um, why can children not continue um, exploring and learning about these things? And what I think is it's up to the adults in the room to be responsible for listening to their children and understanding what the children have learnt, whether it um, be from someone that attends their school and workshop or something that they have the privilege to, to take on that's cultural. So I think the, I feel like the cultural responsibility is, is a national responsibility. Uh, would you agree? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
custodianship is something that everybody That's needs to. Custodianship, yeah, definitely. It's something yeah. that everybody needs to um, to look at. We all have to drink the same water. We all have to breathe the same air. Yeah. And we're not going to be able to do that if we don't come together to do uh, to look after those things. Um, I was um, quite captured by the painting over here on the wall of the. Uh, fire in the landscape outside of the window. Um, I think it paints a very real picture that um, for a lot of children um, growing up, this is becoming their experience, that they see this sort of stuff. Um, um, in the, uh, sometime in the next couple of months, I'll be doing a little bit of work with um, Beachmont community. Um, and a whole street wiped out um, in last year's fires and there are children as well as adults that are just traumatised by fire. Um, and that's their experience. It, it's a justifiable and understandable experience. They have a fear and a trauma uh, associated with fire. Um, but part of what the cultural fire can do for those communities and those children is to help that healing process, to understand that fire is a tool it's used on the landscape. When we use it right or correct, it's, it's something that can create life or harbour life or sustain life. Um, much the same as water. Water and fire go hand in hand together. Um, we need both of them. Um, in the same way, water and fire have the ability to take life. So they must be respected. Um, and I think part of that through the arts, this is a perfect opportunity for people to actually share and tell their stories, uh, whether it's based on experience or knowledge. Um, but it's something that I think we all need to maybe spend a little bit more time to understand. And when we can uh, take that extra time to really understand it, we have opportunity for learning and growth, and we have, um, we have benefits. There are so many benefits um, that we can utilise as well as bringing people together. Um, the workshops that we run bring in a lot of communities uh, people who you wouldn't normally see together in the same place. You might see uh, the Aboriginal community or traditional custodians with private property owners and the Rural Fire Brigade and the guy from council and the National Parks Ranger and they're all there working together for the same reason, to look after the landscape and, and find a better way to manage things. Uh, so that's one of those social benefits that we get. Then our children see all of the grown-ups interacting in a positive way as well. Thanks. Um, I'd like to um, look at some artworks now and um, speak about um, these beautiful artworks that we're surrounded, we're lucky to be in this space surrounded by um, Dale's work here at the back is um, film, beautiful film work. Um, and just so you know, the volume is turned down. This is a um, film with audio, Dale's work. And Judy's works here in this space. And I'm wondering, Judy, if you can um, tell us about your works for this exhibition and how the ideas came to be for these works. Well, I actually asked uh, Tim Walsh to do some research for me. So thank you, Tim, because <laughs> um, he knows the way that I like working with graphs and uh, things like that. And uh, really was trying to find the right graph to work. I mean, there's so many. There's so many thing, ways that you could have gone to make work around this. And so really this one here appealed to me just showing the, sort of the increase in um, temperature and what that's leading to. And you probably, some of you won't see it here, but there's a lump of coal over here, which is a very beautiful specimen. Um, you know, I feel like I could see diamonds in it. And I think you were saying it looked a little bit like tourmaline or something, yeah. Um, but just that's another elephant in the room too, is what's happening with global warming and how it's affecting the environment and how it's not just the fires, it's sea surface temperature rising, acidification of our oceans. Um, you know, all of those things are contributing to this um, multiple uh, 
you know, pandemics, which is nothing to do with COVID, but which is to do with environmental destruction. So I think this is fairly blatant, but also that iridescent green that I was talking about, you know, that really, that research in growth, which is really important, um, you know, with some species in order for them to be activated. And this one over here, um, which my cousin Dot uh, Watson over there, if you put your hand up, yes, and uh, Lisi and Dale contributed to, and Lisi did some of the charts here too, Lisi Carmichael, sitting around last Saturday night, maybe, <laughs> um, working on this. So behind it, you can see there is the, um, almost like the, my fingerprints impressing the vegetable pigment, you know, like the charcoal within it. And then these particular forms, fan forms, which you see everywhere, and it's indication of, you know, it's going from, you know, high to catastrophic, or in some cases, code red. And it's just showing uh, the difference between states, but really, I don't think there is any difference when it gets to a certain um, time within, you know, whether it's to do with the temperature, whether it's to do with how dry it is in the environment or whatever, we're all on code red, and I would suggest we're all on code red probably at the moment in terms of what's happening. You know, sort of just recently there's been fires in South Australia and Western Australia, and uh, while we might going start be going into a cooler season, um, it's never going to go away. It's always going to be something, whether it's floods, fires, cyclones, um, you know, degradation of our reefs and our oceans. It's something which is all around us. And uh, as Leighton was saying, I think it's something we all have to be aware of. It's not going to go away. And we all have to make um, gestures and informed decisions about how we deal with it. So basically, there are, these are sort of illustrations um, of a state of consciousness that sort of exists between. I remember um, being in Darwin when I was working at the Northern Territory University there, and Marcia Langton was there, and there was the burning questions, you know, and a lot of work on fire and working with fire with local people, and even on an artist camp in Blue Mud Bay, Gunbalanya, oh, not Gunbalanya, um, Blue Mud Bay, with the community there, and Manula, an artist from Yurikala. I was saying, you know, how amazing it was seeing the fires and what they look like. And she said, oh, yeah, and she's a TO from up there. So she, we all got out of the truck and then she started lighting one for me. <laughs> it's like that was her country. She knew exactly when to do it. It was at the right time, you know, this. And Leighton, you would be able to talk about this, about the fact that you need to have the, um, you know, the best time might be when there's dew on the grass at a certain time of the, the day, at a certain time of the year, etc., etc. So it's all of the, those knowledges that are part of... Um, our understanding of and, and should shift other ways uh, that fires have been lit and um, operated and worked with in Australia. And I was speaking about that exhibition, the beautiful exhibition at the Art Gallery of South Australia during Tarnady a few years ago, Jonathan Jones, uh, Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe, and showing a lot of um, colonial paintings which, and they were speaking to them and saying, you can see, looking at these, where the fire has been managed and moved through, so now it's creating pasture for kangaroos to come in and for Aboriginal people. They would have gathered them in this area here. And if you know just, um, you know, Highgate Hill area and Karilpa West End, um, that's been described as a beautiful basket and the, the narrow neck end of it, uh, which is, you know, sort of doorknob terrace, would have been a place where uh, fires would have been put through, people would have been beating and um, moving uh, people through so that then they could cap capture the game at Doorknock Terrace. So you'll see that everywhere within urban um, environments as well as regional environments. So just add with that, um, a lot of those early paintings, the fires that they're painting in those, the beautiful white smoke, they're not you can't see flames, you're only seeing smoke um, because of the type of fire that we're seeing. Now, When if you were to ask several artists to paint a picture of fire on the landscape, 
I can almost guarantee that probably the majority of them would be putting black smoke and you can see flames and things like that. Um, but the other thing I love about that was just the fact that she just jumped out of the car and just lit it for you. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, that's totally the, the way that, you know, we can use that knowledge and, um, and have people to have the authority to just come in and do that when they know it's the right time. And, and the play with fire, that um, the idea that fire's not going away, it wasn't a problem before Western civilization, And so the idea that fire can, could be celebrated. Um, say, for example, there's the, the, the kind of the Australian stoic way of whinging when it's raining. Oh, it's raining. Actually, let's celebrate the fact that it's raining. And the, when, there's a, when there is a fire, it can be playful and it can be really joyful. Yeah, yeah this time of the year... Um our burn windows, as, as much as some agencies will say we have four months and it's getting smaller, our burn windows for burning, we've got about 11 months of the year that we can burn. So we've got systems that I'm planning a burn for next month, which is still classified as bushfire season, but we've been able to burn some of these landscapes for the last three or four months uh, with the right conditions. Um, and it's the, the timing of these, of these fires that are it's one of the important things. But yeah, it's that celebration. When we get the big lightning storms and things like that, we celebrate it's a seasonal indicator for so many mobs, whether it's a hunting indicator, a seasonal indicator for fire, all of these sort of things are things that should be celebrated and, and embraced. Um, I, I know that all the farmers out west are definitely celebrating when they get the storms come through. Um, I think we need to sort of have a look at that and for the small inconveniences that we get, um, celebrate that we're still getting rain. Thanks. Uh, Judy, you just mentioned something that sparked something, um, a recent memory for me in terms of the South Australian fires. Does anybody here um, have the latest on what... Does anybody here know about the South Australian fires? And how that fire, the, those fires came to be? Yeah, can we talk about that? Yeah. Hi, um, it's Liz on the other side of the curtain. Um, <laughs> actually, I was in Adelaide. Um, I'm from Adelaide. I grew up in the Adelaide Hills, and my mum got evacuated last week when I was home. Actually, um, we grew up. I was just talking to Lou about it because he has family connections to Adelaide Hills as well. Um, it, my father lives in the city in an apartment and you can see it. You, I saw the fire at four o'clock and I, you know, I've got a lot of anxiety around bushfires growing up in Adelaide Hills and um, it, it came out of nowhere at four o'clock and it was kind of in the, um, more in the southern, southern direction, I guess. Um, and I was like, oh, it's not near where I grew up, obviously still worried about it. But within like two hours, it, like it was, it was terrifying. It, and I was watching it move across the landscape. Um, and it was, the fire front line was 25 kilometres. And it was um, an arson attempt. It, um, it was started in like seven places. Um, there were seven start points. So the fire front was huge. And it was moving right towards the kind of, towns in the Adelaide Hills that are really quite populous um, and so everyone was evacuated um, and if it hadn't been for um, basically a cool change or just the wind dropping um, it would have burnt like tens of thousands of homes and actually the next day it flooded so which is unbelievable that it even rain, it barely rains in Adelaide in summer but it, next day was a flood so it was very nearly very, very catastrophic, yeah. yeah. Um, completely catastrophic. And I just feel like um, not only are we dealing with these huge environmental changes that are occurring, um, let's be honest, from the results of colonisation um, and the um, lack of interest around um, Aboriginal um, cultural fire burning practices, um, that we have to deal with people purposefully setting fire to the landscape for what reason? Yeah, so when I learned that this was an arson attack upon the environment, it's just, you know, what do you do? I mean, I how do we, 
how does this, how can it stop? But, but I think, you know, if you look at what happened on Gari, Fraser Island, you know, that, that was an illegal yes. campfire, not attempt to, to be arson, but, you know, you know, people should know better. You yep. know, you've got all these signs around saying, do not light fires. And while they didn't mean to do it, you know, it's something that just got away so easily. And also at Binneborough, which I'm sure you can talk about. I just wanted to mention another thing, one other thing before I forget. The coal is meant to be talking about global warming, but of course also about um, the other environmental, you know, sort of degradation which is occurring, which is leading to all of this, which is what's happening with coal mines, etc. So that's something where we can actively think about how do we want to engage with how we go ahead for ourselves and our families and how do we want to achieve our energy? And do we really need to be using thermal coal? Um, can we redirect jobs towards more sustainable energy practices? Thanks. Thanks so much, Judy. Dale, can we um, hear from you about your work and um, sure. if, if there, is there any way that we can adjust a little um, scarric of sound at this point? Yeah. Um, that would be great. Thank you. So the work is made, uh, and I'd like to acknowledge um, Josh McGuire, a local filmmaker and friend. Uh, Josh and I had made a film in the past and Josh has worked with a few of us here. And Josh Maguire and I initially set out to shoot a film, and so the, set, the audio that's recorded here is, is captured by Josh Maguire, and the, f the footage has been reshot. I, I ended up shooting that again. Um, but the, the work comes from the idea that uh, Moreton Bay ash as a branch, as a way, as, as, a, as, a, as a resource, a dry Moreton Bay ash branch, has been described to be by my uncles for quite a while as a way to carry uh, fire across the landscape and there's ways that they'll put a social story to that and uh, whose role that is and how that functions I'll leave to to those men to tell that story but we've for quite a while had this idea of uh, this this question around how long does the does the branch smolder for so the works called Morton Bay ash smolder smolders for a long time and it's really just a, a, a an opportunity to study that and to look at that and to ask the questions around how does the Morton Bay ash smolder, what are the functions of the actual piece of timber, it's, it's kind of biology when it's living and when it's a dry piece of timber, why, does it, why was it the, the cultural form for carrying fire across the landscape and part of what I recognise is there's a different kind of internal structure to the way that the, the, the timber operates, there's like a, a softer core at, at different parts and it was described that the, the Morton Bay ash will smolder and then kind of put its own protective sheath on the outside with the ash. So this worked for me as a way of um, picking up some of these fragments of cultural knowledge and also the, the, the prospect of uh, um, oral histories being shared and recounted. The multiple screens are looking at the opportunity to see it once and then a few seconds later it replays on the second screen so you may have another go at catching that and refining your, your awareness of that. Um, it's a really the reason Josh Maguire and I, the, the film that we initially set out to make isn't shown is that that's a reality of the, the, the knowledge gaps. So my, my knowledge gaps and the, the fragmented history that I was trying to work among is the reason why there's a second iteration of the work. And so that's, that's fully disclosed even in this install in that I don't know the story but let's, let's look at it and let's see, see if we can build that up again. My uncle's mum's brother, Uncle Milton Lawton, and Uncle Steve Kemp in Warabinda are doing that work. That's their story. That's their cultural story and the social story around it. But also this, for me, is a really clear indication that there is a fragmented, um, fragmented narrative that we've got. Uh, Morton Bay Ash, I mean, it's named Morton Bay Ash, but it's something like um, Eucalyptus tessellaris as its sort of western name it was given, but it's all over the eastern seaboard and all the way out to the gorge, Carnarvon Gorge areas. So what's that story if, if, if the central Queensland Murrays are telling that story around travelling the, the landscape with fire, how does that relate to others socially and even ecologically? Beautiful. Um, can we um, talk about the work um, in terms of it, the logistics of the work as an artwork, so this is your second film? It is, it is, yeah. Um, the logistics of the work. Um, just around uh, why you decided a film work 
mm. for this particular exhibition? Was it the best way that you could ah, okay. um, yeah. communicate what you were wanting to, to say? You decided on film again, and yeah. will you use film in the future, do you think? Mm. I really love film, and I, I often see films before I know how to make them, which is how I developed the friendship with Josh Maguire, uh, because he knows how to make them very beautifully. Um, and uh, initially, there's an, there's an original metaphor that, that drove this, this work in that um, if you're, someone's keeping that flame alive and carrying that flame across, across time and place, I originally had a particular frame up of that image of how long does it take for that stick to burn down and let's just let's watch that and in the metaphor of who's keeping the flame alive and who's tending that and who's caring for that and who's committed to hold that knowledge who's committed to keep doing that work and uh, in, in that sort of framework so that's that's how the original work came but it was quite aesthetic and it was quite kind of um, artistic but when I got to then make it I recognized actually on a human, on a personal level, it was flawed because I didn't know the whole story, and that's the reality. That that really actually is the work. The work isn't the aesthetic image that I originally had, didn't, had been telling people and even telling Tim about that I wanted to make. The work really is the fact that it's fragmented and I don't know the whole story. just wanted to add something while you were swapping yeah. mics. Um, there's a lot of rock art around too and other things and I just remember there was one of this woman uh, in, up in you know, Arnhem Land area where she's carrying brandishing um, to I think they're Banksia branches and running with her dogs and known as Firewoman. It's the most amazing artwork. And it's, it's a really incredible one for this whole thing where she's taking it on. She's in charge of the fire and she's running with her dogs through that country and, you know, cleaning it up and organising it. And, you know, it's a fabulous one. Uh, I just feel like um, it, it is the, the journey of the work. You know, it's discovering those... Um, I, I like to use the term accidental masterpieces. Um, um, when speaking about the creation of artworks because you just you're discovering things about yourself while making the work um, and you're discovering more and more about the work itself is it resolved perhaps not continued to, right. it, to be continued from within yourself for the next work and the next work and the next work um, what do you think I agree, Shannon, because I, I, I may have resolved an aesthetic piece, an aesthetic, an aesthetic yeah, work. I may have done aesthetic. that and achieved a resolved work, which I would have presented, but that's actually not really the work, if I'm honest. And so that's, that's really what I was confronted with, with Josh Maguire out west the shooting the film, and then coming back to, to describe to Tim and others that it didn't work the way that I had planned on it. But also, uh, I'll, I'll just leave that there, yeah. It's beautiful. Um, so I was just going to also sort of say that, you know, with that, although the story may not be complete there, it does make people ask that question. I hope so. And hopefully create that discussion around yeah, who does carry that fire or pass that on or uh, pick up that responsibility. Um, and that's, a, I think, a bit of a common thread um, that I'm sort of hearing through here as well is about um, who is responsible and how do, we, how do we sort of contribute to that process. But I think it, yeah, definitely um, it engages conversation. I hope so. I'm mindful of time. Um, I'll just take a quick scan of the room at this point. Are there any questions? Yes. I'm just curious, Leighton, if you could maybe speak a little bit about the different seasons between the way that Western culture looks at seasons and having the four seasons in Indigenous culture. Yep. Uh, so at the moment, we run everything off a Gregorian calendar. We've got 12 months of the year, 52 weeks of the year, 365 or 366 days of the year. 
our scheduled and, and routine works around those dates and it's the same dates. But the land and the weather and the seasons don't work like that. So that's, for, for us, our seasons are, um, they're movable. So although we might burn one system in March one year, it might not be ready till April the next year. So it's all about those uh, seasonal, seasonal indicators where we're actually looking at uh, the land to tell us. And that's that communication um, or where we talk about reading country. Part of those seasons, so we'll have different seasons where we're, at the moment we're in what we call storm burn season. So we're burning different landscapes around the, uh, specific landscapes around the time when we get these big storms and we get these heavy rains because the land that we burn needs those heavy rains to soak into the soil. We've got other landscapes that require quite a delicate fire. It's, it's a very fast moving fire and it just sort of wisps through the landscape because it's on sandy soil. You have any fire, if you've ever been camping on Stratty or Morton or Fraser or any of those sandy places and you have your campfire, it takes a long time to cool down and all that sand around heats up. So what that does is actually cooks the seeds. So beneath us we have our, our seed bank all through the landscape. Those seeds require um, the right temperature and the right conditions for those fires. So we have sandy uh, burns where the fire and the grasses that grow on that sand, they're thin grasses, they're designed to burn and move quickly through the landscape. We have other systems that uh, will burn a little, might be a little bit different uh, because of the soil makeup or the grasses that are on that landscape again. Um, but each of those seasons and, and different places are very uh, diverse and individual places. Then you've got places that are really fire sensitive. So you have to be very careful with the timing that the fire goes in there. Then there's no fireplaces. Uh, like Beachmont, where the rainforest burned last year. Um, when we're starting to see rainforest burn, that's telling us that there's an issue there uh, that needs to be addressed. Um, but it's that diversity. So we've got so many different types of soils, different types of uh, grasses, different types of trees, different requirements along all the landscape, and those timings and seasons are really important. When we hear the term mosaic burning, um, a lot of people think, oh, they just put a patch here and put a patch there and put a patch there. It's actually the whole landscape. So each of those patches is, is an ecosystem. And it's like a quilt work. So when the, uh, the gum country systems are ready to burn, they'll burn at the right time. The other area around it won't burn because it's either just recently been burned or it's not ready, it's too green. And then when we get into the next one, the same thing will happen. This is when we have healthy landscapes. At the moment, a lot of our landscapes all mixed up and it'll all burn at once as we saw last year. Um, Leighton, can I just quickly ask, how does it get mixed up? And is fire effective in it getting mixed up if it's not present? Uh, yeah, it's uh, fire's responsible for it getting mixed up. Uh, so the wrong hot fire can get put on the landscape at the wrong time and you have the wrong vegetation come back um, and also the absence of fire. Um, so I'm currently assessing a um, council reserve at the moment and there's been no fire in there for a long time. There's no grass, just leaf litter and bark and lantana. Um, and we're going in there sometime soon and we're actually going to activate all of those seeds and when we do that we're going to start having grasses come up for the first time in a long time and see animals come back into that space. Both birds, uh, wallabies, uh, a lot of the smaller ones. Uh, because part of what we do is not just for us, it's part of that balance that we're responsible to look after the animals as well. Can I just jump in and talk about something we were talking, discussing earlier, which was about water. So I, I just mentioned briefly that within my own water research in the Gulf Country, you know, there are, there's indications that 80% of the springs, for example, that were active at the time of colonisation and recorded, 80% of those are no longer working in the Gulf Country. 
and then you were talking about water mining and uh, Dale, I'm sure you would have things to talk about as well too and how that lack of water is then affecting everything around it. Yeah, um, we've got, I live on Tambourine Mountain and it's a really touchy subject up there too. Uh, we've got Coca-Cola up there mining for water um, and they have been for years, uh, but it's all rainforest. So all that rainforest is dependent on a high water content. Um, so, and I suggest that this is happening in other places as well. Um, the management of water um, is changing a lot. I don't know how many different river systems that we need to dry up for the sake of having just these giant pools of uh, big dams. Yeah, um, the, the dam conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's huge, these, what, how um, damaging these dams are to um, our nation as a whole. Yeah, it's a very different approach and I understand that we have cities and things like that but we need to find a balance and somewhere in between where we can actually, we can have water for people. I don't know why all houses isn't mandatory to have a water tank, a rain tank. It's free. Um, but yeah, these, uh, these are some of the sort of things that are, that are contributing to our drying out landscape as well. Um, the Murray-Darling is one of, the, one of the systems that, you know, there's a lot of eyes watching that space at the moment and there's a lot of other ones that will probably be next on the list as well. Uh, I'm just being quite mindful not to speak on behalf of other places too um, because that's not my place to do so. But um, as a we do have an issue with um, with how we manage our water as well, and um, and how that directly affects the landscapes and the drying up of creeks and our wetlands that also become our natural fire breaks when we do have fires. Those are the sort of spaces that should be pulling fire up. And you were talking about the water. I mean, it has to go back into the water tables because if it doesn't, within it's not just the water running through the creeks and the rivers, it's all that water, underground water table, those reservoirs which yeah. are still needed. You can't just pull that out and thinking, oh, there's an excess here, you know, like in the Barclay Tableland in our area yeah. and, and like the springs, etc., where so many people came in, like in our country, came, came in, saw these beautiful springs and thought, right, I want to get a bit more of that, dynamited it and destroyed this really fragile um, system in which you know the underground water was fed up through tiny fissures within the rock to then come up to the surface so it's a very very fragile ecosystem and it's a recognition of that you can't just that you know people were wanting to take it from the daily river which is a huge river system and expansive yep. but it feeds all of those areas around it it's yep. not just water flowing through and that's a massive region yeah uh, just at this point, are there any more questions? Because I have, I think, one final question for the artists here. Uh, it, it's kind of like um, uh, maybe a statement from me also, if you could just, I guess, respond to what I'm saying. I, I just think... Um, it's really fantastic in terms of artworks and artists um, and peer artists um, that are non-Indigenous that get it. Um, I feel um, a sense of pride in allyship in, in terms of the arts and artists that make work about environment and country because these are artists and people who are taking the time to understand the country that they're living upon. They're taking the time to research and learn about where they're living, which is not what everyone's doing in this country and around the world. Do you feel the same about peers, non-Indigenous artists that are making works about country? That there's this sense of, oh, you know, we, we can all make these works but I guess in a, in, a, in a different, from a different lens perhaps, Judy? Uh, I know a lot of non-Indigenous artists who are making artwork around this. 
but it's, you know, each artist has their own journey and trajectory to sort of go on. And sometimes it might be about the environment, but it might be about other things which are a result of that as well. So it's hard to sort of pinpoint that they're an environmental artist exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it feeds through every part of our being and our story and our, uh, you know, who we are, that the environment is always going to be a part of it because if that doesn't survive, neither do we. We don't. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Dale? I feel like every artist should make the work that they need to make and aware of the limitations of their experience and their, their positionality. So in the same way that everyone has the responsibility to have an idea about water usage and fire presence in the landscape, I reckon Australian artists have a responsibility to tell their stories as well. Uh, again, aware of the, your positionality and the limitations of your experience. And maybe that's one for the art colleges and the art theorists out there that the, the idea of the romantic landscape or the Australian landscape painting, what is it and how it always gets poo-pooed and challenged and revived and all these ones. But we've got multiple different ways we can come back to that, looking at landscape and, and reshaping that discourse as well through, through contemporary practice, I'd say. Yeah. One other thing I would suggest is that everybody, Indigenous and non-Indigenous artists, if they're comfortable to do that, go on artist camps, along with scientists, botanists, yes. Yes. everybody else. And I think that we could all share a lot and learn a lot from that, because it's when you have those experts in the field, both from cultural practice, but also from scientific knowledge working together, everybody will generate so much more knowledge and it will permeate out into the community. Mm. I think we'll probably save a lot of time too, um, because a lot of Western science now is uh, coming out with um, different releases about stuff that we've always known, but it's just putting the data to that. Um, and that's a, a big part of what's, uh, what we're trying to do with the Fire Sticks Alliance is actually put that data and the science into it, uh, where we can actually um, contribute to that science research and, and development, um, well, especially when we're looking at different fire methodologies on the landscape. But to be able to um, almost partner and, and work with that science as well because for many, many, many years science and culture has been viewed as two separate things but they're actually, they actually marry up together perfectly. They just need to understand each other. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Leighton? One more. Pardon me. I, I, okay. Maybe I, I thought towards uh, Benita Ely before as well, as a, as a non-Aboriginal artist who's been really clear in the, in the international realm around very strong environmental politics in her work. Uh, so it does happen and other younger artists or newer artists uh, could easily find exemplars in the field. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to um, wrap it up because I am mindful of the time. Uh, we do have another panel discussion coming up after a short break now. But I'd like to say uh, to Leeton, to Dale and to Judy, thank you so very much for today. Thank you to Tim and all of the other artists um, exhibiting and that are here today. And thank you um, to everyone attending and um, joining in this fantastic discussion. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>